Resident Evil Podcast. Hello and welcome to a very special audio presentation from the Resident Evil Podcast. Known as Requiem for Raccoon City, this is a deep dive into the lore that is exclusive to the remakes of Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 3. Regular listeners of the podcast will know that we've recently done that deep dive into Resident Evil 3 remakes lore, and this is an opportunity to expand upon that in a significant manner with input from the Resident evil community. We have recently been asking for people's talents to bring to life some of the files contained in these games and the Batman has been working tirelessly round the clock to make this into a cohesive audio drama. So John did you want to explain a bit more background to it? So this originally started out as a very small idea. It was an idea for a 10 to 15 minute skit to accompany the Canon podcast that we've just released. However, as I made more notes, it became significantly bigger and lots of people wanted to get involved. So um, it obviously ended up being a lot bigger than what I initially imagined and therefore it was just running too long to go alongside a regular podcast so we decided to release it separately. The basic idea behind it was just to sort of take a look at specifically the new law that was introduced in Resident Evil Remakes 2 and 3 and tell the backstory of the Raccoon City incident via the perspective of these remakes and largely ignoring all the original game law. Obviously listeners familiar with our podcast will know that we all champion the originals over the remakes in terms of story. However, you know, we thought it would be interesting to put the new law together in a sort of chronology and let people experience the Raccoon City incident through these reimagined, you know, through the eyes of new characters like Wayne Lee and Jane Doyle. Um, so it's just a bit of fun, really. And yeah, hope you enjoy it. So as John says, they're a huge community effort uh, and we want to give a big shout out to the following individuals who lended their voice acting talents. Vito, Super Dome Man, Mr. Fancy Pants, Mike, a.k.a. Hunk, CVX Freak, Zombie Girl, Aaron Zed, Rigatoni Weston, Sonny Bauer, Bloody Eye Jerry, William Margetta, Brido, The Oracle Dragon, Goldheart 180, Sid Smith, Kansas Renville, Agent Red Jackal, Mako 85, Smiley, Harbear, Mr. Spencer, Siniac, Mrs. Superdone Man, Ali, Ali's roommate, Felix Melendez, The Mansion Project, John O'Hara, Martinez, Seventh Rebel, and a special thanks for Joe White for reprising his role as Chris Redfield. There's also a shout-out to my daughter Daisy and Batman's son Oliver, who joined in the fun. And Sean, you wanted to comment. I just want to say, um, obviously, <laughs> without going into the real-life reasons why 2020's been difficult, as fans, toward the end of the year, we've had to continually endure something that's been pretty awful that's happened to Capcom. We've talked about it in previous uh, episodes. But I just want to say a big thank you to everybody on the discord in particular for maintaining sort of radio silence with the leaks we've not had to really nip anything in the bud you've all done fantastic work in helping us try and preserve a place on the internet where we hope the community feels safe and free from spoilers and our team could not have done that without the help of all you guys because we're not on the internet all the time and also a big shout out to Sonny because he's sort of been manning the UK night hours for us and he's been doing a good job but that, in all truth there hasn't really been a need to moderate too much because the community we have is brilliant and I just want to wish you all a great Christmas and we'll see you in what is hopefully a much much better new year so thank 
Thank you. Yeah, what Sean says that we're surrounded and our audience are such fantastic and sincere fans. And, you know, thank you so much. You know, the Discord is spoiler free and toxic free. And uh, that's credit to, you know, you guys. Again, that's just down to our audience as well. So thank you so much. Happy Christmas. Rombi. It is obviously has been, as Sean alluded to, a, a very tough year for a lot of people. And it's been, as far as the community, a lot of highs and lows. Um, obviously, a lot of the recent stuff in regards to Capcom as well has not been the greatest news. So um, hopefully everyone out there is staying spoiler free as well. Otherwise, there's not much else for me to say. Enjoy the radio drama. It's been awesome to hear John's work on this. And I'm really looking forward to the final result. And uh, yeah, hopefully people who are involved enjoy hearing themselves and people they know and uh, get to share it with others. It'd be really great to see uh, the community rally around this as a really good positive because I think um, having so many great people involved is really awesome. So enjoy. And uh, otherwise, have a great Christmas and a great New Year. And we'll see you in 2021. I just want a big final shout out to all our listeners, not necessarily just the ones on Discord. Uh, we wouldn't be here without your continued support with the podcast and all our other side projects. So without further ado, sit back, grab your popcorn and enjoy Requiem for Raccoon City. Michael's clock tower is constructed as a Baroque-style building standing in the heart of Raccoon City. It will become a beloved icon, and residents will consider it to be emblematic of the city. It was built with the assistance of several philanthropists, and is dedicated to the children born in the developing city, and the first floor is used as an elementary school for many years to come. When the city saw further growth during its electrification over the course of the early 20th century, the student body of St Michael's Elementary swells to over 600 students. 1929, Timothy Wiles is born, a concerned raccoon citizen who will one day write to the Raccoon Times with his reservations about the structured safety of the large statue on the roof of Toy Uncle on Crystal Promenade. 1938, Moon's Donuts is established. It is located on Crystal Promenade near to Redstone Street. By 1998, this family-run business will still be going strong and celebrating its 60th anniversary under proprietor Derek Moon. 1959. Justin Hansen is born. He will become a criminal and be well known to RPD officers following multiple arrests. He is not a bad guy, just a bit of a bird brain kleptomaniac. 1962. Toy Uncle is established by Charlie McBurgan. This toy shop is immensely popular with families and is located on Crystal Promenade in downtown Raccoon City. It is famous for the statue based on the company's founder's likeness on the roof of the store. 1969. Raccoon police relocate to an old converted art museum on Ennerdale Street. The renovation is overseen by Stevenson and Mitchell Construction Company. 
The Kite Brothers Railway opens. The brainchild of Oral and Werner Kite, this new transport network will enjoy the patronage and support of all of Raccoon citizens. As of opening, it only has one mile of track with three stops, but thanks to future investment by Umbrella Corporation, by 1998 the network will have eight stations and stretch across 8.5 miles. The Kite Brothers' main office is located near to Wilson's Pharmacy. 1978. St. Michael's Elementary is closed at the clock tower as the building shows signs of age and wear. The clock is deactivated and strict limitations are placed on entry to the surrounding premises. Also that year, Knight's Construction Company is founded. Over the next 20 years, they will work on the sewer systems of many of America's great cities, operating on the core principles of playfulness and superior industrial design. Their CEO, R.B. Fisher, has a love of chess that is incorporated into many of their unique designs. 1979, Coffee Shop Sigourney is established in Raccoon City. Circa late 1970s, Catherine Warren is born. She is the daughter of future Mayor Michael Warren and will become a love interest of freelance reporter Ben Bertolucci. 1986, Bread and Pastries Bakery is established in Raccoon City. It is located on Redstone Street. 1988, Jack the Police Dog starts serving in the Raccoon Police K9 unit. Late 1980s, Emma Kendo is born, the daughter of gunsmith Robert Kendo. Early 1990s, years have passed with the once beloved St Michael's Clock Tower in the public plaza on lockdown. But in the early 1990s, the Umbrella Corporation works in league with Mayor Michael Warren to renovate and reopen the area, this time with proper preservation efforts in place. 1992. Spencer Memorial Hospital is established in Raccoon City, known as the heart of Raccoon City's healthcare and the forefront of science. Spencer Memorial Hospital is meticulously designed by the Spencer Foundation to serve as the backbone of medical care throughout the region. In addition to state-of-the-art outpatient wing and spacious inpatient wing, they boast one of the country's largest research wings, where they conduct clinical trials for new drugs that will change the face of medicine across the United States and the world. This hospital features 60 beautiful patient rooms, including 15 birthing suites. 1993, the clock tower officially reopens, and from today, the sound of its heavy, tolling bells can once again be heard throughout Raccoon City. The Nest facility opens. This is an expansive underground facility situated beneath Raccoon City, and construction first began in 1991. It will primarily be used for ongoing research into the G-Virus project. William Birkin relocates to Nest from Arkley Laboratories and works alongside his wife, Annette. Over time, Dr. Birkin's senior research team will grow to include such individuals as Wayne Lee, Brandon Cartwright and Rick Mendoza. They will report on their ongoing work to senior executives from Umbrella USA including Richard Kessler and Jane Doyle. At an undisclosed point in the future, an adjoining facility, Nest 2, will be constructed nearby with a primary access point located directly beneath Spencer Memorial Hospital. 1996, November, Jack retires after eight years service in the K9 unit. The 11th of November, 1996, Brian Irons receives an award for outstanding commitment and service to his profession in law enforcement. At the end of the year, Raccoon Police released their crime statistics. There have been 551 recorded crimes, 3 murders, 5 rapes, 10 robberies, 15 aggravated assaults, 
120 regular assaults, 34 burglaries, 350 thefts and 14 vehicle related thefts. 1997, Toy Uncle celebrates his 25th anniversary. To celebrate, the shop creates a small porcelain Charlie dolls individually handcrafted with love and care by the staff. These limited edition likenesses of the company mascot should make for a precious gift for any family. Unfortunately, the dolls do not prove popular and do not sell as well as expected. The 23rd of October 1997, Brad Vickers headlines a recruitment open day for STARS as part of an RPD hiring seminar and job fair. The day will begin with an information session at 8am followed by a written exam at 10am. Circa Fall 1997, Umbrella began a series of human clinical trials with the incomplete G-Virus, using orphan children housed at their city orphanage as test subjects. The purpose of these trials is to assess G-embryo growth observations, breeding rate observations and T-Virus resistance to G-Virus infection. The children housed here are treated well, yet they are not allowed to leave the premises or make phone calls. There is always numerous medical staff at the facility and the children receive regular injections and medical screenings. Raccoon City Orphanage was founded and run by Umbrella Corporation alongside charitable donations from citizens and other businesses across town and Brian Irons is the director of the facility. By now the building is quite dilapidated although its famous stained glass window still attracts many visitors to the town. One of the boys in the orphanage, Oliver, is officially adopted by a new family and will soon be leaving his friends behind but his adoption is in fact a transfer to Nest where he will be used in ongoing experimentation with the T-Virus Epsilon strain before later being introduced to the G-Virus human trials. December 1997, another boy from the orphanage, Tom, writes to his friend Oliver to see how he's getting on with his new family, but he receives no reply. At the end of the year, the RPD released their crime statistics, with 511 recorded crimes, a reduction of 50 from the previous year. Aggravated assault, murder and vehicle crime have all seen a slight increase, but all other crime categories are down on their last 12 months. 1998. Knights Construction Company celebrate 20 years of business. Since 1978, they have had the honour to work on the sewer systems of some of America's greatest cities, whilst never losing sight of their two core principles of playfulness and superior industrial design. R.B. Fisher is still the CEO of the company and is an honorary member of the World Chess Alliance and the Raccoon Chess Club. Moon's Donuts celebrates 60 years of business. The store is still going strong on Crystal Promenade and enjoys good business alongside Jim's Crabs and Storehouse Blue Mountain. A tourist guide is crafted for new visitors to Raccoon City. Welcome to Raccoon City! Did you know? While well, we are the home of pharmaceutical giant Umbrella Corporation, Raccoon City is a vibrant and dynamic city with a long, rich history of its own. In this guide, we'll introduce you to a few of the more unusual points of interest our city has to offer. Raccoon City Police Station The building in the center of town wasn't always a police station. In fact, it used to be an art museum. Various features like the unusual clock tower and the goddess statue in the main hall reminds us of a bygone era. Orphanage Just a few blocks from the police station is an orphanage, founded and run by the Umbrella Corporation, with the help of generous donations from businesses and citizens alike. The building is known for its stained glass window, which attracts visitors from around the world.
Sunday, 4th of January, 1998, a young girl, Sally, recently housed at the orphanage, notes down her thoughts on her new surroundings. January the 4th, Wednesdays are perfectly great days, because we get snacks and ice cream. I hate the last place I was at. The teachers were all meanies. It was just study, 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 and there wasn't no ice cream. I love, love it here. <laughs> Saturday, 10th of January, 1998. All the children at the orphanage are going to be health screened to assess their suitability for the ongoing G-virus trials. Sally updates her diary unaware of the horrific fear that awaits them all. January the 10th. There were an important rule made today. Everyone must write a diary, get health checkups, and we ain't allowed outside by ourselves. It's good that we don't have to go to school. I don't want to go and get it on for my own clothes, especially not by the guy that used to wear them. <laughs> Friday, 16th of January, 1998. Chief Irons visits the orphanage in his role as director, and Sally is excited for his visit. January the 16th, the orphanage director is coming today, so I'm going to wear my most favourite turkey blue outfit. The director is tall. The director a moustache. The director is a policeman. Ring around the world, see a pocket full of posies. <laughs> Thursday, 5th of February, 1998. Another child living at the orphanage, Tom, wonders why his friend Oliver has never responded to any of his letters, blissfully unaware of the terrible fate that has already befallen him. Feb the 5th. It's been two months since I sent the letter to Oliver, and all I've gotten back is nada zip. Then again, they're all like that once they've got adopted. Bet he's living like a king in some fancy folks home and forgotten all about us really thought oliver was different that he'd be my friend for life guess i'm just a fool sunday 8th of february 1998 strict curfews and restrictions the children are living under coupled with the daily medical testing fuels rumors of what is really happening at the orphanage one of the older kids Anne, likes to scare the younger ones with her stories February the 8th, Anne sat all the little kids down and told them a story today. She said all the kids that got adopted are turned into food for the boogeyman. That's why no one hears from them ever again. Not sure where she gets her ideas from, but she's sure got the mind for writing trashy horror novels.
Friday, 13th of February, 1998. Tom is slowly becoming paranoid about what is happening with them all at the orphanage. Feb the 13th. There's something weird going on around here, and it's not just cause of Anne's stories. Don't get me wrong, I've been in worse places, and the place is funded by some big drug company, but why can't we call people or go outside? Why are there so many doctors around? What's with those shots every day? It's almost like we're... Saturday. 14th of February 1998. Following the results of his medical screening, Tom is deemed suitable as a candidate for the upcoming G-Virus experiments and will be transferred to Nest. He is told he has been chosen for adoption by a suitable family and will be leaving in the near future. Feb the 14th. I'm getting adopted. Me, most people go for younger kids, so I figured I was too old, but I can't say I'm not a little happy. Who am I kidding? I'm totally psyched. I say goodbye to this place on the 20th. I'm going to try my best to be a good son. Someone my new mum and pop can be proud of. Mid-February 1998, down inside the nest, the G-Virus is injected into a child subject. This is Oliver, former occupant of the orphanage, and now known simply as Subject 628. Previous tests have confirmed Oliver as a slight resistance to the T-Virus, and today's experiment is to see if the T-Virus can hold the aggressiveness of the G-Virus. Results quickly confirm this is not the case. William Birkin notes down the results. Embryo Growth Observations, Subject 449. After the G embryo was implanted in the subject, we made a 50cm incision from the chest to the abdomen and began our observations. With the help of the medical team, the subject's consciousness level was kept between 50 lucid GCS 10. However, the subject's consciousness level deteriorated and further observation was deemed unnecessary. The subject was then disposed of. Breeding Rate Observations, Subject 501. The G-Virus was administered to Subject 501. 501 mutated into G-Form and was introduced to a group of 30 test subjects. After 2 hours 36 minutes, it was observed that all but one of the test subjects had been implanted with an embryo. All subjects were disposed of. One subject broke down during experimentation and took their own life. T-Virus Resistance Experimentation Subjects 628 and 639 we administered G-Virus to subject 628, who had shown slight resistance to the T-Virus. The virus was then introduced to subject 639, with whom 628 had a close relationship. 628 showed some signs of resistance, but had been implanted with an embryo after 24 minutes. T-Virus resistance does nothing to stop the mental deterioration caused by the G-Virus. Thursday, 19th of February, 1998. Subject 628, previously known as Oliver, somehow escapes the confines of Nest and returns to the orphanage in the middle of the night. He is immediately detained by staff, and his physical deformities from the G-Virus terrifies the other children, including Tom. 
Feb the 19th. Oliver came back in the middle of the night, all messed up, screaming, help me, and stuff. I didn't even recognise him at first. His face was all peeling and melted off. He's with the teachers and doctors now. It's just a skin thing. They say he'll get better soon and then we can go on our adventures together again. In the following days, Oliver is disposed of, and as a precaution, all of the remaining children in the orphanage, including Tom and Sally, are eliminated in case they were exposed to the virus. Late February 1998, Chief Irons, in his role as director of the orphanage, types up a report on the recent candidate purge at the facility. The losses are unfortunate, but necessary, and a potential biohazard situation has been successfully averted. Regarding the incident in question, I'm glad to report that it has all been taken care of. On February 19th, test subject 628 escaped from the lab and broke into our facility. 628 was originally from this facility's candidate pool and apparently returned in the hope of seeking help. 628 was quickly detained by our staff. As 628 was undergoing one of the lab's clinical trials, there was the distinct possibility that he had brought the virus with him. So we disposed of all of our test subject candidates as a precaution. Their speedy disposal was conducted by the security team, to whom I'd like to extend my thanks. As for our neighbours, we told them that due to the building's dilapidated state, we have temporarily moved all of the children to a different orphanage for their safety. As for the future of this facility, once it has been fully decontaminated, I plan to resume securing more test candidates. Wednesday, March 4th, 1998. As part of the Hunter programme, experiments begin with brand new gamma variants as the infants are set loose. Initial expectations are low, but there is plenty of room for potential. Hunter Gammas are an amphibian variant of the Hunter creature based on initial promise shown by the Alpha model, a batch of which are due to be sent to the Arkley Laboratories in two months time. But whereas the Hunter Alpha uses reptilian genes into a fertilised human embryo, the Gammas based DNA template is amphibian. Gamma research is overseen in Raccoon City by Dr. Logan Carlyle. Today, one of his research assistants makes his initial report on the Gamma infants, and the early indications are not promising. March 4th. Water temperature 18 degrees Celsius. pH 6.8. Gamma's released from tank for the first time. Movement sluggish. Combat potential low. Saturday, April 18th, 1998. Research continues on the Hunter Gamma specimens. Experiments with growth and strengthening hormones lead to a breakthrough in their development, and as a result, today's observations are much more positive. April 18th. Water temperature, 20 degrees Celsius. pH, 6.8. Experimented with additional hormones and drugs. One adjustment bore positive results, with a significant rise in combat potential. Specimen is now able to move quickly and swallow prey whole. June 1998. Raccoon Monthly run a special editorial on Chief of Police Brian Hyatt. Attention! All Raccoon City heroes! Who's the most feared, yet respected man in town? The answer should be obvious to any resident of our fair city. That's right, it's Police Chief Brian Irons. 
the man that scares the bejesus out of criminals everywhere, and stern father that loves every last one of us sinful citizens. Chief Irons is known for his great charity work, including big contributions to the orphanage, support for abused women, art preservation, animal conservation, and let us know if we've missed anything. Just when does our great hero sleep? When asked, The city is my extended family. I'm just doing what I do for my family. Chief Irons said with a soft smile. Tuesday. June 30th, 1998, Umbrella officially scrapped the Hunter Gamma project, but Research Chief Logan Carlyle has other ideas and plans to continue his work unofficially in a sealed off portion of the sewers beneath Raccoon City. Together with his research assistants, they managed to smuggle out several of the more promising subjects with higher intelligence levels before Umbrella can send in a team to purge all the remaining specimens. Disobeying Umbrella HQ's direct orders is a substantial risk, but all this is because of Dr. Carlyle's enthusiasm for putting the gammas into practical use. June 30th. Water temperature 22 degrees Celsius. pH 6.2. Umbrella has officially shut down gamma research. We managed to smuggle some specimens with especially high potential from the lab before disposal. Dr. Logan Carlyle is more committed than ever to perfecting the gamma line. July 1998. Deep inside the Nest 2 facility, Chief Researcher Cornell Garner finalizes development on a groundbreaking portable rail cannon. This is a joint project developed alongside the US military, and they have been working in cooperation as part of Umbrella's continued close relationship with the US government. The primary purpose behind the project is to create a weapon capable of neutralizing powerful BOWs should an outbreak occur. XXXXX Redacted. Project title, Ferromagnetic Infantry Use Next Generation Railgun. Development codename, Finger. Chief Developer, Nest 2. Lead Researcher, Cornell Garner. Assisting Developers, United States Army. Ammo Caliber, 60mm. Muzzle Velocity, 6,000 meters per second. Project Objective, Suppression of New Bioweapons in Case of Outbreak. Additional notes. Extreme firepower provides the secondary benefit of it completely obliterating the target, leaving no trace behind. User feedback. This thing is totally rad. Tyrants out of line? Just give them the finger and problem solved. Packs the firepower we need. It would be even better if there was a way to control the output. Mobility may prove to be problematic in the field. Perhaps its platform could be refined? It requires multiple power sources. May be difficult to secure in practice. Could you consolidate to a single power source? File ends. Friday, July 10th, 1998. Murphy Seeker, a condemned criminal on death row, is recruited into the Umbrella Biohazard Countermeasure Service. Murphy was formerly a United States Marine and was highly regarded for his excellent shooting skills and abilities as a sniper. He was imprisoned after he retaliated against a notorious street gang who murdered his brother. Armed with a hunting rifle, Murphy hunted down and executed all 20 members of the gang. Sentenced to death, Murphy was given a stay of execution when a mercenary coordinator working on behalf of Umbrella took notice of his skills. Here Murphy notes down his thoughts as he prepares to leave prison and begin a new life at UBCS boot camp. 
July 10th, 202 pounds, 12 laps of the yard, two circuits. Suck it, prison. The Umbrella Corporation just recruited me for a job. A job! I don't know how they're going to wipe out a life sentence for murdering 20 gangbangers, but whatever. I'll take it. Beats shitting away the rest of my days behind bars. I gotta get back into shape. Sunday, July 26th, 1998. Murphy is transferred to a new training camp. Although his fitness is improving, his shooting skills are still very rusty. July 26th, 196 pounds, 20 kilometer run, 3 circuits. Target practice at 400 yards, 5 misses. Caught the chain yesterday and got moved to a UBCS training camp where I fired my first bullet in two whole years. Missed a stationary target by 5 inches at 400 yards. I never fucking do that. It's like I forgot everything. Doesn't matter. I'll get sharp again. Watch me. Late July 1998. Following the traumatic events at the Umbrella Executive Training Center and the Arkley Mansion facility, various post-incident investigations begin. Based on the testimonies of all the surviving STARS members, a classified preliminary report on the mansion incident is produced. This bizarre incident occurred in a mansion owned by the Umbrella Corporation located in the Arkley Mountains. On July 23rd, STARS Bravo team was dispatched to the Arkley Mountains to investigate a series of mysterious and grisly murders and went unexpectedly radio silent. On July 24th, Alpha Team was dispatched as well and became entangled in the events at the nearby mansion. The incident culminated in the destruction of the mansion. Casualties were numerous. The only survivors were five members of STARS. The cause of the incident was the illegal bioweapon experiments being carried out in a secret umbrella lab beneath the mansion. The T-virus being used in these experiments escaped the facility and is presumed to be the root cause of all that occurred. However, all evidence was destroyed along with the mansion, so further investigation has proven to be extremely difficult. August 1998. Despite being formally rejected as a prospective BOW by Umbrella, Hunter Gamma Research is secretly relocated to the sewers, still under the direction of Dr. Logan Carlyle. He has secured a secure network of tunnels after bribing the sewage department chief. Now the preserved specimens can continue to grow and prosper. William Birkin sends an email to Chief Irons as he creeps ever closer to completing the G-Virus. He is aware the aftermath of the mansion incident is going to raise questions and there is likely to be an investigation into Umbrella's operations across Raccoon City. He wants the surviving STARS members monitored closely. Police Chief Irons, as thank you for your unwavering support, I have deposited a small sum into your account to use as you see fit. I hope I can count on you to maintain surveillance over your subordinates, especially the ones who survived that mansion. Get rid of them if you must. The surviving STARS members have up till now been keeping a low profile. They have collectively agreed to continue investigating Umbrella and have split up into two teams. The Europe Infiltration Team will focus on determining bioweapon import channels and the Raccoon City Reserve Team will gather information on corporate wrongdoing and investigate the strange incidents reported around town. They are all acutely aware that they are being monitored by local authorities. Chris Redfield will lead the European investigation. 
Friday, August 14th, 1998. The maturing hunter gamma specimens are learning the layout of their new surroundings. The ongoing research is progressing smoothly and the subjects are demonstrating high levels of intelligence by recognising the researchers and acting unaggressive in their presence. Still, as a precaution, the researchers have taken the liberty of procuring some weapons in the event they get out of control. In this case, the weapon in question is a refurbished grenade launcher from Kendo's gun shop. Special adjustments were made to ensure compatibility with a variety of ammunition types, and the chamber needs to be manually cycled between shots, but this is reflected in the reduced price. August 14th, water temperature 25 degrees Celsius, pH 5.8. Two weeks since relocating to the sewers. Increased temperatures have led to a decrease in water quality, but specimens appear fine despite my concerns. Gammas quickly learned the layout of the sewers, and within two days were exploring the entire underground of Raccoon City. All specimens are familiar with and friendly towards us, but I have procured high-powered weaponry as a safeguard in the event that they become uncontrollable. <laughs> Also, that same day, known criminal Justin Hansen is arrested for theft after being found loitering in the second floor waiting room of the RPD. Although Hansen himself is not the stealthiest of criminals and is generally harmless, this is still a serious security breach for the police station. Confiscation Report Date August 14th, 1998 Location RPD Second floor Waiting room Reason for confiscation a suspicious man was found at the location listed above. When confronted by an officer, he tried to escape by acting confused, but was arrested. A note he had on him was confiscated. Remarks It's not like everyone doesn't know who it is, but it's Justin Hansen. Age 39, city resident, single, and a regular fixture in our jail. He wasn't a bad guy per se, just a bit of a bird brain kleptomaniac. Can't believe he tried to pull a fast one on a police station, of all places though. Saturday, August 15th, 1998. Murphy Seeker updates his training log with progress at UBCS boot camp. His fitness is improving and they are now moving on to mock combat scenarios. He also records an unpleasant encounter with former Spetsnaz member Nikolai Zinoviev. You want I make your gravestone now? <laughs> August 15th. 190 pounds, 30 kilometer run, three circuits. Target practice at 600 yards, two misses. Okay, I've got my shot grouping down to three inches. Feeling good, feeling good. After lunch, they put me through my first mock battle. The cap and the other guys are good people and goddamn beasts of war at that. But what the fuck is up with that lunatic Nikolai? He used me as a fucking human shield just to score some extra points. Monday, August 24th, 1998. The owner of Wilson's Pharmacy heaps praise on a new hair care product recently launched by Umbrella. He believes his business will soon be booming as a result, but the increasing unrest in the city makes him more security conscious about securing his profits. August 24th. This new hair tonic from Umbrella is just flying off the shelves. The stuff they make always works wonders, so it's no surprise. I was counting on this and ordered a huge shipment. My instincts are paying off, literally. I just know sales will continue to rise as word gets out. That said, the string of violent incidents on the news has me worried. Maybe I ought to invest in a good safe to hold all the cash that's rolling in. 
Saturday, August 29, 1998. Chris Redfield, currently somewhere in Europe and investigating Umbrella's corporate dealings, sends a message back to his fellow Stars colleagues in Raccoon City. As he is aware, all his correspondence will likely be intercepted by Irons. He writes in deceptive language to hide his true activities, confident his colleagues will understand. His covert investigation appears to be bearing fruit. To my bestest Stars buds, how are y'all doing in that drab old station? Hanging in there against old irons? Me? I just got back from a date with a hot chick. Bet you can guess what we got up to under her extra-large umbrella. Europe is amazing. One month is in no way enough to even scratch the surface. Maybe I'll extend my vacation for another six months. Barry, don't you even think of coming to join me. Wouldn't want to make all the cute girls cry, yeah? So you just leave the babes to me. Jill, if Claire tries to contact you, please let her know I'm okay. Chris Redfield, August 29th. Late August 1998, undetermined date. Umbrella Europe announced completion of the Nemesis T-Type, a ferocious new humanoid BOW designed to rival and outclass Umbrella USA's Tyrant program. The breakthrough has been through creation of a new control mechanism using an artificial recreation of the last Plagueis parasite, now known as NE-Alpha. Researchers inside Nest 2 observe a strange mutation in several zombie test subjects infected with the Epsilon strain T-Virus. The subjects lose all hair and their skin turns almost white in a strange pigmentation effect. Closer inspection reveals a phenomenal regeneration ability to the point where standard firearms are almost useless against them. This unique mutation appears very similar to the V-Act process in the mutated Epsilon strain first documented at the Arkley Mansion. Researchers have come to nickname these zombies Pale Heads. Although not as dangerous as regular BOWs, shipping and processing manager Gabrielle Reed insists her team members be granted access to higher powered weapons as an extra safety precaution when handling these unique specimens. Dear Dr. Emerson, I would like to formally request that the weaponry normally reserved for the bioweapon synthesis team be made available for any employees interfacing with the admission and dismissal of test subjects. These test subjects do not present the same levels of danger as our bioweapon products, but I believe that this weaponry authorization is advisable, as outlined below. Recently, some test subjects have developed a new mutation granting them very high regrowth abilities. Our team refers to these specimens as pale heads. They have been appearing with regularity, but the specific cause has not yet been determined. The astonishing rate at which these pale heads regenerate makes it difficult to deliver a lethal blow with standard weaponry. If any sort of system failure were to occur within our facility, we would be woefully underprepared to defend ourselves. For this reason, I would like to request that high-powered weaponry capable of subduing the pale heads be issued to all of our employees working in shipping and processing. This will ensure that, in the event of an emergency, we will be able to quickly eliminate the threat and evacuate safely. Thank you very much for your consideration. Chipping and Processing Manager Gabriel Reed 
throughout August and September 1998. Reports circulate throughout Raccoon City about people falling ill and sightings of strange creatures in the suburbs. These rumours gain traction and word spreads of a so-called cannibal disease filtering around town. The cause is a combination of T-virus fallout from the mansion incident and a leak of contaminated pollutants from both nest facilities secretly orchestrated by William Birkin to deflect Umbrella's attention away from his plans for the soon-to-be-completed G-virus. The main disposal centre is located inside Nest 2 and this is where a majority of the contaminants come from. Disposal Center Protocols This facility is to be used for the dissolution and disposal of test subjects used in the Nest 2 experiments. The potent solvents used will ensure that any biological matter within the vat, living or dead, is completely dissolved and ready for disposal. Please follow all safety protocols when using the disposal center. Always confirm that no employees are in the chamber before beginning the dissolution process. Always use the regulated amount of solvent, regardless of the volume or mass of being disposed of. If a test subject reacts violently, do not halt the disposal process. Leave the chamber filled for at least 12 hours, then check for complete dissolution before draining. Nest 2 also contains a tyrant manufacturing plant containing numerous variants of T103 type tyrants all in varying stages of development. The hunter beaters are also kept here and these variants were developed with the intention of increasing performance enhancement over the alpha model used at the mansion. Further gene remodeling has resulted in a distinct appearance and an enlarged left arm and claws. Although combat performance is slightly lower than the MA121 Alpha, the Beta is quicker and has stronger agility. But as well as bioweapons development, Nest 2 focuses on developing vaccines and anti-BOW technology in a bid to suppress outbreaks and accidental biohazards. Dr. Nathaniel Bard is a senior researcher here, alongside his position at the Spencer Memorial Hospital directly above. Attention Nest 2 employees. The objectives of this T-Virus research facility differ from those of Umbrella's main nest facility. Here we focus on real-world use cases which arise as new bioweapons are created and introduced, such as the need for T-Virus vaccines and the new weaponry capable of suppressing bioweapons. Some aspects of our work here can be dangerous, so it is imperative that all employees adhere to workplace regulations without fail. In particular, unauthorized entry by unapproved visitors or the removal of work-related data or materials will be met with severe disciplinary measures. It is a great honor to be part of the finest research organization in the world. Keep this in mind and stick to the rules as we forge new and revolutionary technologies. Tuesday, September 1st, 1998. The research assistant working under Dr. Logan Carlyle on the Hunter Gamma project is becoming concerned the now fully matured specimens do not have enough room in their current environment in the sewers to thrive. They can also contort their bodies and fit into small sewage pipes, making the prospect of future containment more difficult. September 1st. Water temperature 23 degrees Celsius, pH 6.1. We were lucky to secure this space by bribing the sewage department chief, but it's beginning to feel cramped due to the gamma's continued growth. We should begin to consider other possible arrangements. Also, that same day, the completed Nemesis T-type pursuer is shipped from Charles de Gaulle Airport via JFK to Raccoon City. Cargo, Nemesis, shipping route, CDG to JFK to RC. Shipment date, September 1st, 1998. Shipment type, Class 1 hazardous materials. Additional notes, all transit within the United States is to be made via helicopter. Take extreme care during takeoff and landing, 
as shock to the parcel may potentially lead to self-activation. We here at the European branch are excited to hear your thoughts and evaluation of this newest prototype and are pleased to offer this specimen to you for testing. It has been through numerous trials and possesses incredible destructive power. So please, exercise extreme caution when using it. Lead developer, Dr. Herman Frankel. Wednesday, September 2nd, 1998. The owner of Wilson's Pharmacy takes delivery of a new safe. His code is a puzzle located on the AquaCure poster in his shop. September 2nd. The new safe is just perfect. Nobody knows the code, not even my wife. It's a secret between me and my beautiful AquaCure queen, and she'd never give it up for a thief. Early September 1998. Since the early 1990s, much of the underground sewer network in the vicinity of the two Nest facilities is under Umbrella's control, and the primary access point to Nest is via an underground tram running from a nearby water purification plant. Workers assessing a huge sinkhole that has recently appeared on Flower Street need access to certain parts of the lab and request updated security clearance. If too much attention is drawn to the sinkhole, it could reveal the existence of Nest to the rest of the city. September inspection, week one. I already put in a request last week, but we absolutely must have a replacement ID wristband ASAP. We need one to gain access to certain areas of the main facility. In other words, me and my crew can't get to the places we need in order to do our job right now, so I don't want to hear anyone accusing us of slacking off. Commitment, honesty, integrity, these are the core values that create the foundation for Umbrella. The Barnaby office building in downtown Raccoon City is to be demolished and rebuilt as Raccoon Tower. In response to increasing sentiment that Raccoon City's downtown district is becoming dilapidated and stagnant, the Umbrella Corporation will be financially backing large-scale construction renovations to breathe new life into the city. Raccoon Tower will be the first of these projects. This 50-story building will be the tallest structure in Raccoon City, housing countless businesses and providing office space to numerous companies. Furthermore, the top floor will host a state-of-the-art medical facility, offering Umbrella Corporation's latest clinical advancements, allowing for pioneering medical treatment and preventative vaccinations. Umbrella expects that this construction effort will usher in a new age of growth for Raccoon City. Construction schedule, September 98. Demolition of Barnaby Office Building begins, November 98. Construction begins, September 2001. Construction complete, October 2001. Raccoon Tower opens for business. It's this foundation that will continue to build a brighter future for all of us. Simultaneously, the G-Virus research is nearing its final phase under the direction of William Birking at Nest. Although Birkin and the executives at Umbrella USA are having increasing disagreements over the future direction of the research, Birkin wants to use the virus to create a new breed of evolutionary humans, known as G-humans, whereas Umbrella USA desire more traditional bioweapons. This fracture in the future direction of the project is going to be the catalyst for the whole Raccoon City biohazard. In the meantime, Birkin sends his latest progress report, focusing on the creation of G-creatures. The G-Virus clinical trial will be entering its final phase very soon. Before G, the new creature that will surpass humans, is born, allow me to predict a few things about its biology and biological functions. Intelligence. The subject's intelligence will begin to drop immediately, with their linguistic abilities disappearing within a matter of days. Finally, they'll lose their capacity to reason and their humanity. 
G will be a creature of pure instinct driven only by need to survive and reproduce. Physical abilities. Due to its unusually accelerated cell division, evolution, it will be highly adaptable to any environment. Furthermore, with its amazing ability to repair itself through regeneration, it will be extremely difficult to completely kill it with any conventional small firepower. Reproductive behavior. G's most remarkable feature will be its intense desire to reproduce. It will instinctively search out humans with DNA that closest matches its own and implant an embryo in them. But the chances of success are very low and if the DNA is not close enough of a match, an underdeveloped G creature will be produced instead. I suppose the only ones who might be a close enough of a match would be any biological children of that subject though. Dr. Isaac Graves, a senior researcher currently working in Nest 2, notes down his regrets at accepting such a position following the barbaric practices that occur here after watching a hunter beater devour an unfortunate employee after he was caught trying to steal sensitive umbrella data. Isaac Graves' diary, no date. The pay was generous. The benefits were good. Most importantly, they promised me I'd be contributing to state-of-the-art medical tech research. For university teachers stuck working in nowhere America, it was a golden opportunity like winning the lottery. So I went for it. I made the pitch to my family, and we agreed to move here to Raccoon City. Well, hindsight is 2020 because this lab is a den of monsters who conduct cruel and barbaric experiments for the sole purpose of taking human life in the most sickening way possible. It's messed up. The world needs to know, but every time I work up enough courage to blow the whistle, I think of Penny and Casey and immediately chicken out. Umbrella owns this town. There was a guy they caught trying to smuggle company secrets. They essentially fed him to one of the betas. Fed him. I saw the whole thing. I got my wife and daughter into this. I just need to do my job, do as I'm told, for their sakes. But let this be testament that I do have a conscience, and that I've learned my lesson. End of entry. Following Nemesis' arrival in Raccoon City, Dr. Bard sends his congratulations to senior researcher Dr. Frankel, but also does not hide his reservations over the use of artificial parasites as an experimental new control system, which he believes to be highly dangerous. Senior Fellow Dr. Frankel, please allow me to send my heartfelt congratulations to you and your colleagues at Umbrella Europe for completing Nemesis, a truly remarkable achievement in the field of bioweapons research. Introducing a parasitic organism into a tyrant's brain to gain external control of it? How can I not marvel at such a wild idea? However, from a medical perspective, I must emphatically state my disapproval of this shift away from established Umbrella policy. By turning to the use of parasites, you are setting a dangerous precedent. Viruses can be kept in check. I believe an effective vaccine can be developed for any virus on Earth, with abundant funding and a bounty of samples, of course. Can you say the same for parasites, however? Doctors have tried in vain to develop a vaccine for malaria. Parasites like Plasmodium are far more genetically complex than the T-virus, and to think they will submit to control is utter folly. Perhaps in your country, consumers are willing to buy automobiles with no brakes, but here in America, they know better. Then again, I recall you have a degree in economics, so no doubt you've already devised a brilliant marketing strategy to win over the naysayers. I look forward to your talk at the forum in Berlin next month. In the meantime, I shall be exploring medical solutions to this hubristic problem you've foisted on us. Sincerely, Nathaniel Bard, Ph.D.
Following discovery of the paleheads inside Nest 2 last month, the research team have been attempting to replicate the strange mutation that caused their creation. In order to do this, they are going to need more test subjects. A request is sent to Chief Irons in his capacity as director of the orphanage to send double the usual number of guinea pigs to the lab facility this month. Letter to the director. Do you recall the white specimens discussed in last month's report? The researchers have named them paleheads. These specimens have undergone a special mutation. Unlike normal specimens, they have the ability to regenerate. It would be difficult to stop these specimens with weak weapons. Not impossible, I should add, but it would take some time. I wouldn't try it myself. Oh, to stop a palehead, you must use high-powered weaponry that can damage it faster than it can regenerate. My team is currently searching for a way to reliably produce paleheads. Therefore, I would like to request that double the number of subjects are sent to our laboratory next month. This is the price we must pay to secure a brighter future. Umbrella's construction crew, working inside the Flower Street sinkhole and corresponding sewer treatment works, receive their updated security wristbands. Now they can reach classified areas of the sewers and water purification plant and go about their work assessing structural integrity around the sinkhole. September inspection, week two. With the new wristband that's just arrived, we can finally begin our survey at the demolition area. As to the report from the other day about the incinerator, it's nothing really. Probably just a large piece of leftover trash. I'll have to take a look myself after I wrap up this report. Wednesday, September 9th, 1998. Sewer worker stumbles into the restricted area and is killed by one of the hunter gammas. Impressed with its combat ability and following consultation with Dr. Carlisle, the researcher decides to contact Umbrella Europe about taking the project on as an official bioweapon. Their gain will be Umbrella USA's loss. September 9th. Water temperature 21 degrees Celsius. pH 6.1. A water treatment worker found his way into the lab, but the Gammas promptly eliminated him. This proves their viability for field use. I'll reach out to Umbrella's European branch tomorrow. Perhaps they will see the light. Ever since Umbrella officially discontinued the Hunter Gamma project back in June, Dr. Logan Carlisle could not be prouder of his creation. He passionately believes Umbrella Europe will monopolize the project through to its inevitable success as the greatest hunter model out there. My little darlings, it's already been three months since we fled here together. I find myself thinking back to the day you hatched. Your little voices made me tremble with pride. Your adorable little bodies brimming with incredible destructive power. Oh, and of course, that voracious, insatiable appetite. <laughs> you are no less than the pinnacle of the Hunter series. <laughs> and yet, they ordered me to destroy you. They said you were unfit for use as weapons because of a, a few minor vulnerabilities. So what if you're susceptible to heat? So what if your delicate mandibles are exposed when you feed? 
haven't they ever heard of character flaws? It is those very flaws that make you so very, very precious to me. But we'll show them yet. Down here, we'll continue to walk this evolutionary path together. We'll prove to Umbrella that you, my beloved Hunter Gammas, are truly superior. Thursday, September 10th, 1998, at the Central Hotel in Raccoon City, prominent political figures associated with Umbrella gather for a banquet to talk shop and enjoy some disposable pleasures. The evening is organised by US Senator Greg Tester, who is firmly in Umbrella's pocket. Also in attendance is Dr. Bard, corrupt police chief Brian Irons, and current mayor Michael Warren whose political decisions for Raccoon City have been manipulated by Umbrella for years. Amongst other things, the main focus of the evening is the current status and response to the so-called cannibal disease slowly spreading throughout Raccoon City and the implementation of a quarantine zone for those potentially infected by the T-Virus. Dear Dr. Bard, it is my pleasure to cordially invite you to a banquet on September 10th at the Centro Hotel, where we will be exchanging viewpoints on Raccoon City's new special medical zone, SMZ. Attending will be Mayor Michael Warren, Chief of Police Brian Irons, and other distinguished members of our community. Thursday, September 10th, 1998, 6pm, the Orient Restaurant, the Centro Hotel, second floor. We would be honored if you joined us. Sincerely, Greg Tester, United States Senator. Handwritten note. Nate, I'll be introducing the bill for that new drug of yours in mid-August. Bring the cash. You booked a suite for the usual after-party. You're a brunette guy, right? I'll let Irons know. Saturday, September 12, 1998. Following talks between the raccoon hierarchy and Senator Tester, all patients of the cannibal disease who die in the isolation wing of Spencer Memorial are covertly transferred to Nest 2 under Dr. Bard's orders to check for T-virus infection. The regular hospital staff not employed by Umbrella are told the bodies require special handling because of a possible unidentified contagion. In its current form, the T-virus does not revive the dead. The virus works by first infecting the subject, then stopping the heart to place the subject in a state of apparent death. Then eventually, the virus will revive them as a zombie. The T-virus, in its present state, cannot infect an already dead corpse and resurrect it. September 12, in minute to N2, male 45, female 32, discarded, male 60, female 89. Tuesday, September 15, 1998. Today, three more bodies are transported to Nest 2 from Spencer Memorial Hospital. One elderly female corpse is disposed of and a young girl is confirmed uninfected. More patients are being admitted every day as thanks to the hospital director's orders, anyone showing symptoms of the cannibal disease is admitted free of charge, and has been since August. September 15. Admitted to N2. Males. 55. 19. Female. 51. Discarded. Female 76, returned. Female 8, uninfected.
Another reason why contaminated bodies are being transferred to Nest 2 is to allow for Dr. Bard to test an experimental T-virus vaccine he has been developing. On the roles of antigens and adjuvants in vaccine synthesis, Dr. Nathaniel Bard, Chief Researcher, Spencer Memorial Hospital. To most efficiently synthesize a vaccine, both an antigen and an adjuvant are required. The antigen produces an immune response, while the adjuvant increases the effects of such responses, leading to increased antibody production. By combining samples of these two ingredients, one can create a potent vaccine base. By processing this vaccine base with our proprietary equipment, a larger batch of vaccine can be created with astonishing ease. What's more, my latest antigen and adjuvant samples yield unprecedented rates of antibody production, producing more than a thousand times the yield of traditional materials. This not only makes it an effective vaccine, but also a potential way to eliminate existing infections. Mid-September, unspecified dates. As the G-Virus nears completion, the relationship between William Birkin and Umbrella USA completely breaks down. Birkin realises no position on Umbrella's executive board is forthcoming, and he has become paranoid the company will try and steal his life's work and eliminate him, ironically echoing the fate of his former mentor, James Marcus. He constantly rages at both his research staff and chief irons to keep a lookout for spies infiltrating the nest. He also reaches out to the US military in the hope he can defect over to them and complete the G-Virus on his own terms. You think I didn't know you were coming? This is my life's work! Ada Wong, an independent contractor currently in the employ of Umbrella's main rival company, hires freelance reporter Ben Bertolucci to head to Raccoon City and investigate Umbrella's dealings. A skilled journalist, Bertolucci quickly uncovers Brian Iron's corruption with Umbrella and the existence of the G-Virus. He takes great interest in both the orphanage and the large sinkhole near the sewer entrance on Flower Street. Thanks to Ada, he is aware Umbrella has a hidden facility underground, and this is where he believes it is. He manages to secure an interview with Annette Birkin, duping her into believing the topic is a new research scholarship set up by Umbrella. explain the rumors about the orphanage. I, I just find it way too coincidental Umbrella is one of the benefactors. You told me this interview was about the new scholarship Umbrella set up. <laughs> Come on, that, that, nobody cares about that. They want to know about the G-Virus. Where did you hear about this? And that big fucking hazard goes straight to your underground lab. Now, are you going to talk to me? Or are you gonna... This interview is over. <laughs> Two months since the mansion incident, Jill Valentine is still haunted by nightmares of that fateful night. Whilst the other star's survivors have all left town aside from Brad, Jill has remained behind to investigate Umbrella's dealings in Raccoon City. But her investigation has been impeded by suspension and an order to remain at home. What's more, her apartment appears to be under round-the-clock surveillance. The entire city seems to be under Umbrella's control, and the police are no exception. What's wrong with Umbrella? Oh my god. Your company is responsible for infecting everyone! Wednesday, September 16th, 1998. As part of a security update at the Raccoon City Police Department, all employees are issued with a new ID card. Uh, September 16, 1998. Each member of the force has been issued an ID card. 
from now on, this same card will be required to access all the storage boxes. Do not lend your card to anyone, and take great care in using it. If your card goes missing, report it last immediately. RPD Facility Maintenance Department. Friday, September 18th, 1998. To quell the unease of the citizens, whose paranoia is increasing thanks to the mysterious disappearances and rumours of a mystery disease spreading, the Raccoon Police Department announced a new intake of police officer recruits. Police Chief Brian Iron sends out a personal orientation letter to each of them, amongst which is Leon S. Kennedy. Officer Leon S. Kennedy. On behalf of the RPD, congratulations on completing your training. You're especially high marked to be commended, and we couldn't be prouder to have you as a member of our force. Please report for orientation at the Raccoon City Police Station on Friday, September 25th at 8am. We look forward to serving with you. Raccoon City Police Chief, Brian Irons. Whilst attending 1442 Box Street, RPD Officer Wes Drucker arrests Rodney Gray on suspicion of unlawful creation and possession of explosives, having found him in possession of a small explosive and a timed detonator. Saturday, September 19th, 1998. Raccoon City Jazz Festival gets underway at Raccoon Park. It will run for two days from 10am to 5pm. Mission is $10 and children under 10 years old go free. Sunday, September 20th, 1998. A security memo is posted at Spencer Memorial Hospital. ID cards are not to be taken off hospital grounds under any circumstances. As per security measures, all employees must store their ID cards in their own personal lockers before returning home for the day. Thank you. Administration, September 20th. Also that same day, Officer Wes Drucker of the RPD files an arrest report for the incident that occurred two days ago when citizen Rodney Gray was arrested having been found in possession of explosives. Name, Rodney Gray. Occupation, unemployed, former electrician. Charges, unlawful creation and or possession of explosives. Narrative. Suspect was seen behaving suspiciously at 1442 Box Street on September 18, 1998. Suspect's person was searched, producing a small explosive and a time detonator from his inside pocket, leading to arrest on the charges listed above. A search of the suspect's home found more than 20 additional homemade explosives at various stages of completion. Suspect was extremely agitated and not of sound mind. Suspect spoke feverishly when questioning began, and at one point questioning had to be halted due to a sudden bout of shrieking from suspect. Once questioning was resumed, suspect made the following statements. I didn't do it for me, I did it for you. Why doesn't anyone understand? The corpses attacked from the shadows. A storm's coming, but this umbrella is no good. Gotta blow it up or you'll be more than just wet. Gotta get more bombs. They're coming. Soon. Gotta hurry. Burn them. Burn the corpses. Burn them good. During questioning, the suspect began to shake violently before resuming a shrieking fit. Questioning was ended and a sedative administrated. Note. Due to suspect's unstable psychiatric condition, suspect's testimony changed from moment to moment. Suspect's delirium made any sort of dialogue impossible. We are currently awaiting the results of a doctor's investigation into the suspect's condition. The explosives collected from suspect's person and residence appear to be extremely powerful. As a safety precaution, a battery was removed from one detonation device upon its admission into evidence. The battery was secured in the safety deposit room. Interrogating officer, where's Drucker? Circa September 21st, 1998. Becoming increasingly stressed with the number of infected being admitted to Spencer Memorial, Dr. Bard takes his frustration out on several of his colleagues. This is not the first time he has been abusive to his fellow staff members, and those not affiliated with Umbrella begin to gather evidence of his harassment and misconduct. All I wanted to know was what the documents were doing in your office in the first place. 
Who do you think you're talking to? I'm goddamn Nathaniel Bard. I'm the best biologist you'll ever meet, you bedpan-changing waste of a nursing degree. Of course I have connections higher up. Of course the military consults with me on projects beyond your comprehension. So stop wasting my time with your nosy questions. I... Uh, I'm sorry, Doctor. You didn't read the documents, did you? No, I shredded them just like you asked. Good. Good. If that's all, you can go back to wiping your patient's ass. That's what they pay you for, right? And polish my shoes. Yes, sir. I bet you know a lot about polishing, don't you? Now fuck off and don't say a word to anyone. A tape recording of incriminating evidence is recorded of Bard sounding off against a poor woman named Dakota. However, the evidence is recovered by Bard's research assistant before it can be used against him. Dakota, I think I know what happened to the missing tape of Dr. B. His research assistant took it. One of my patients saw Abbott remove something from a locker in the nurse's station and walk toward the treatment room. I'll try to sneak in and look during the night shift. You just stay cool and keep doing your job. I don't care how important Dr. B is to the medical community. That kind of harassment is not okay. I promise I won't let them destroy the evidence. He's a pig and an asshole and will get his day in court. Stay brave, stay strong, a friend. Also around this day, work continues in earnest down in the main nest facility, as the day draws ever closer to the G-Virus finally being completed. William Birkin is working in overdrive, and is increasingly paranoid about spies and his work being taken away from him. Some of the senior research team have several email exchanges throughout the day. Rick Mendoza reminisces with Wayne Lee about a girl they were both pursuing named Susie, though apparently she didn't like the geeky nature of both men. Mail, motherfucker! Sender. Rick Mendoza. Subject. None. Do you remember Susie? The cheerleader? What a great gal. We were both into her. Of course, she wasn't into nerds. I still have to give you back those comics and games I borrowed. But you might have to wait a while. On a more serious note, Byron Cartwright sends a furious email to Lee about missing the inspection of Plant 43's holding area, suggesting some extra administrative work as punishment. Mail, motherfucker! So you couldn't make our little meeting? Fine. Don't worry about the greenhouse inspection. Instead, I'll give you something real simple to do. Put together the budget estimate for the year after next, and get it done tonight. Lee receives another email from Rick Mendoza, who is unhappy at the way Byron Cartwright is bullying them around. Mail, motherfucker! Sender, Rick Mendoza. Subject, what's he up to? Can you believe that bastard Cartwright? Cool your jets, asshole. Well, I guess he is the boss. For now. Anyway, have you seen my helix anywhere? I put the secret on the bottom. Let me know if you find it. Tuesday, September 22nd, 1998. A selection of office equipment is relocated around the RPD precinct, including a safe removed from the STARS office as part of Iron's plan to downsize and eventually disband the STARS unit. September 22nd, 1998. Office supply internal relocation notice. Heap resistant three number combination safe. Moved from STARS office, second floor, to West office, first floor. The combo is left 9, right 15, left 7. Please change the combo ASAP upon receipt. RPD, Facility Maintenance Department. 
That same day, more dead bodies from the isolation wing of Spencer Memorial are taken down to Nest 2. The researchers have now restricted their viral testing to anyone under 30 years old. September 22. Admitted to N2. Males 25, 22, 15. Females 16, 21, 29. Discarded 6 male specimens, 9 female specimens. Disposals trending upwards daily. Preemptively dispose of any over 30 years of age. After Umbrella discovered proof that William Birkin has been in negotiations with the US government about defecting over to them with the G-Virus, they hurriedly sanctioned an incursion operation to have him removed from his position at Nest and brought into custody. It is the absolute highest priority that the G-Virus is seized from him. To explain the background to Operation Nestwrecker and why it took place, we must go back and examine a selection of emails sent between William Birkin, his senior research team, and Chief Irons throughout September 1998. Now unfortunately none of these emails are dated, but they did occur in the following order. To begin with, much like the original game, William Birkin is nearing completion of the G-Virus, which he hopes will see him promoted to a senior executive's position within Umbrella. However, as time goes on, Birkin begins to realise that no promotion seems forthcoming, and that Umbrella wants to take the G-Virus in a different direction. They want to create more conventional bioweapons, and do not share Birkin's vision of a device to promote an artificially advanced human evolution. As a result, Birkin stops reporting into the Chicago branch, and begins looking for alternate avenues to pursue his research. This change in Birkin's behaviour is first noted by a top Umbrella executive named Richard Kessler, who notes Birkin has stopped making progress reports. Send Richard Kessler. Subject. Congratulations. I heard the good news. G is almost ready. Strange that you've never thought to report to the research lab here at Umbrella HQ, but I suppose I can let that slide. Anyway, send over the data, would you? And don't worry, you've done good work on G, but we can take care of the rest. This email makes Birkin fear Umbrella are going to oust him from the project and steal his life's work. He is aware from previous experiences what happens to Umbrella personnel who are no longer of any use to the company. After all, it was Albert Wesker and he who plotted and executed the assassination of James Marcus ten years ago, ironically with Birkin taking over all of Marcus's life's work with the T-Virus. This leads on to the next email sent by Birkin to Chief Irons. Police Chief Irons. I ran into some trouble with Umbrella Headquarters. The suits want to take the fruit of my research away. But don't worry, this will all blow over soon. You just keep doing what I tell you and everything will be alright. This email suggests Birkin is fully aware of what Umbrella plans to do. He wants Irons to remain loyal to him and keep a lookout for spies trying to gain access to Nest and the G-Virus. Birkin now makes plans to leave Umbrella and defect to the US government, taking the G-Virus with him on the condition that he remain in charge and complete his life's work. He contacts a senior official named B.E. who agrees to pass on his request. The government are interested and having the G-Virus in their possession, as well as Umbrella's top scientist, would mean they would no longer need to rely on the corporate giant any longer. Thank you for your mail, Dr. Birkin. Top Brass has expressed an interest in this evolving bioweapon you mentioned. Do not worry about costs. 
Our company is the most well-funded in the whole of the United States. Aware that he is betraying his own employers, and even more aware of what they do to rogue employees, Birkin orders security to be stepped up around the nest. He seals off the west area of the lab where all the G-samples are kept, and orders his research team to ignore all incoming requests from Umbrella Headquarters about the G-virus. Byron Cartwright's inbox. Sender, William Birkin. Subject, high priority, increased security. When did Nest become a nest for spies? Three last month, and another four this month. And those are just the ones we caught. Step up security, Cartwright, or do you want to end up like your predecessor? Also, I'll be restricting access to the West area from today. Ignore all requests from headquarters for information on G. Those suits contribute nothing to this project anyway. Birkin also contacts Chief Irons, instructing him to keep an eye out for spies looking to steal his work. His paranoia about Umbrella is beginning to get the better of him. Police Chief Irons, you are to up the security around my lab. Your muscle heads are to shoot any suspicious person on sight. Doesn't matter if they kill them or even if they're Umbrella employees. I'm so close to completing G and no asshole is going to get in my way. Umbrella soon get wind that Birkin is in negotiations with the US government. They order him to cease and desist and report to the investigation committee immediately. But Birkin has no intention of turning himself in. Subject, Notice of Admonishment. You are under suspicion of breaching your contract with the Umbrella Corporation. It has become clear that you have claimed ownership of the G Project and have been in unauthorized contact with the U.S. military. Please respond to the Investigation Committee's summons within 24 hours. Desperate and playing for time until the US government could get him out, Birkin sends another desperate message to Chief Irons, asking him to keep a lookout in the sewers for an incursion team sent to arrest him. Police Chief Irons, get your shit together and do your fucking job. I told you I need more security in the sewers. Don't you know how critical of a time this is for me? As for the money, I can pay you whatever once I take over, but not before. Why don't you get that? Never forget how expendable you are. At the same time, Umbrella Headquarters call in USS Alpha Team and they are sent to Raccoon City to bring William Birkin in alive and secure the G-Virus. This mission will be named Operation Nest Wrecker. To justify this extreme action, an email is sent out to all senior Umbrella personnel explaining why Birkin needs to be taken into custody as soon as possible. Sender, Jane Doyle. Subject, suspending research on G. The Umbrella Corporation has decided to cease all research on G, which was ongoing at the Nest Underground Laboratory. All funding for this project has been cut, and Laboratory Director William Birkin has been removed from his post. To aid the incursion of USS Alpha Team, Director Owens, the senior official in charge of Umbrella's sewer network operations and water treatment facility, agrees to help bypass security protocols in order to help the team pass through the sewers and get into the nest undetected. This includes deactivation of the lab's fail-safe systems. Throughout the day, several employees inside the main nest rest up inside the nap room in the north area. The latest to enter at 2016 hours is Chief Researcher Wayne Lee, a decision that will shield him from the upcoming USS incursion and subsequent massacre. 18545, Toby Jackson, entered 0344, left 0731, 18546, 
Sara Takahashi, entered. Zero four five one, left. Zero seven zero eight one eight five four seven, Walt Page, entered. One two zero three, left. One three three six one eight five four eight, Anthony White, entered. One two zero five, left. One two four eight, one eight five four nine, Cyril Archer, entered. One eight zero one, left. Two zero two one, one eight five five zero, Desmond Locke, entered. One eight zero four, left. One nine five eight, one eight five five one, Wayne Lee, entered. Two zero one six, left. At around 23.40 hours, USS Alpha Team, led by Hunk, penetrate the Nest facility, thanks to the security protocols being temporarily disabled. Operative J. Martinez, going by the codename Ghost, infiltrates the ventilation systems. For your safety, can you clear the door? Welcome to Nest. Enjoy your visit. Let's move. Hunk soon has eyes on Birkin, moving to the west area of the lab, and believes he is on his way to retrieve the G-Virus and antiviral agent. Ghost acknowledges, and they will rendezvous at point W-3, which is the P-4 laboratory. Senior staff clearance required for bridge access. Soon Ghost is in the vents directly above the P4 laboratory. He awaits Hunk's signal as Alpha has eyes on the target and spots Birkin about to open the safe where the viral samples are stored. On Hunk's signal, at precisely 23.45 hours, they breach. work. I'm not handing over anything. We have our orders, Dr. Birkin. I'll ask you one more time. wounded on the floor, Hunk and the rest of Alpha pull out with the samples case. They quickly begin rounding up the employees of Nest. With Birkin believed to be assassinated, the rest of his staff must suffer the same fate to ensure no knowledge of this incursion mission gets out. Annette Birkin, meanwhile, makes her way to the P4 lab. You don't get away that easily. <laughs> 
September 23rd, 1998. As the clock ticks past midnight, the USS begin eliminating employees inside the nest. One desperate staff member tries to reach out to Director Owens for help. Director Owens, there are alarms going off all over Nest. I don't know what's going on, but I can hear gunfire and I can't reach my section chief. We're trapped. Please send help ASAP. Still hiding in the nap room, researcher Wayne Lee desperately notes down his thoughts as he can hear gunfire from the nearby corridors as his colleagues are brutally murdered. transformed into a first stage G. Although still recognisably human, his muscle mass has increased exponentially on the right hand side of his body and split his skin. A large eyeball has grown in his shoulder and there are bone-like protrusions in his upper shoulder. He now possesses superhuman strength and his rapidly devolving mind is focused solely on hunting down his attackers. Birkin's mutated appearance has triggered a biohazard in the area. <laughs> Alpha Team's purge of nest employees is interrupted when they are suddenly attacked by G. Birkin. As they retreat back towards the sewers, several team members are killed. Surviving members of Alpha Team manage to make it back into the sewer network, but G1 Birkin is hot on their trail and is becoming stronger with each passing moment. down Alpha Team and at some point Hunk is separated from the others. By 0118 hours there are only two of them left. 
and a vicious attack by Birkin leaves operative A. Kirkpatrick sprawled on the floor, the samples case crashing open around him, spilling out precious vials of both T and G virus. Ah, please. Oh, please, stop. Stop. Ah. No, 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 no. G. Birkin ingests the remaining G-Virus vials from the sample case. He stamps on vials of the T-Virus, which are subsequently licked up by rats in the area. This will infect them and cause a huge wave of T-Virus to spread across Raccoon City at a remarkable rate. This strain is confirmed to be the newly refined Epsilon strain, the variant developed by Birkin that has improved the V-Act process to create liquors rather than crimson heads. <laughs> Survivors inside Nest confirm a biohazard in the area caused by G. Birkin's rampage. Automatic virus suppression measures have failed, and this can only be deliberate sabotage. They still cannot reach Director Owens, and it slowly dawns on them that Owens was the one who sabotaged the failsafe systems and allowed the USS access to the lab. Director Owens, the situation here is dire. Nest has been contaminated with the virus. It's unbelievable. The failsafe systems didn't activate at all. Is this the work of outsiders? I can't imagine who else it could be, but why? Mary and Kim are dead. I can't stop the coffin. Why won't you answer me? Gradually, all the systems come back online inside Nest, and the computer recognises the biohazard initially caused by Birkin injecting himself with the G-Virus. As what few survivors remain trying to get things in order, a general automated alert is emailed to every employee about the devil antigen. <laughs> Due to an incident in the North area, all Nest personnel are to immediately use the Devil antiviral agent on themselves. Devil is the only way to prevent gene mutation. If you've been infected with the G-Virus, seek help immediately to target and destroy the G-cells in your body. This email is automatically generated in the event of an emergency. Please do not reply to this message. Nest researcher Rick Mendoza tries to reach Wayne Lee, but cannot get hold of him. Unaware, he is currently cowering inside the nap room. Byron Cartwright is also not responding, and Annette Birkin has disappeared. Mayo, motherfucker! Sender, Rick Mendoza. Subject, are you alive? We're under attack. People are dead. The east area is cut off. We can't operate the bridge with the wristbands we have here. Where is that bastard Cartwright hiding? biohazard inside the primary nest facility has also stimulated plant 43 inside the greenhouse. It is agitated and unless they can activate safety protocols, the plant will breach its confinement and spread out into the lab. Rick Mendoza desperately tries to reach Wayne Lee, but he is still missing. Sender, Rick Mendoza. Subject, please reply. Plant 43 is going wild. The greenhouse is hell. We need to send someone in there before it's too late. Wayne, how do we stop this thing? You have to help us. Please reply. Dr. Lee, your presence is urgently requested by Chief Cartwright in the East Area. Senior staff clearance required for computer access. Eventually, Plant 43 breaks loose and spreads into the surrounding area. 
Many scientists are ensnared by it and turn into plant zombies, which soon spread out across the lab. Byron Cartwright is also killed. Soon the plant zombies begin attacking what few survivors remain, and with the T-virus now spreading rapidly through the sewer network, it is only a matter of time before zombies and other monstrosities appear. One of the researchers realises this whole thing was an inside job, and that their own boss sabotaged them all. Director Owens. You. It was you all that. Thursday, September 24th, 1998. At Spencer Memorial, a complaint is made after the locker room key goes missing. Lost locker room key. The key to the locker room has gone missing. The last person to have it may have dropped it somewhere in the courtyard. Until it is recovered, we will keep a spare key here in the office. Please stop by administration at the end of your shift to borrow it. Administration, September 24th. Workers at the electrical substation observe several small creatures building a nest in the area and there is a strong metallic smell coming through the ventilation system. These curious beings are drain demos, small parasitic organisms that have sucked the blood of infected animals and humans, resulting in secondary exposure by the T-vibes. They have a grotesque appearance, having grown many hundreds of times their original size, and possess an ovipositor they jam down the mouth of their prey, depositing dozens of parasitic young that once matured will burst through the chest of their host. Later that night, a nurse from Spencer Memorial observes several bodies being transported from the isolation wing to the secret entrance to Nest 2. As a result, this practice is to stop immediately, to avoid arousing suspicion from the regular hospital staff. September 24. Nightly transfer observed by nurse. Admissions to underground facility temporarily halted. Friday, September 25th, 1998. The mass biohazard caused by the botched G-virus retrieval operation has seen contaminated rats spread the T-virus rapidly across the underbelly of the city over the last two days. The rats have infected cockroaches and other parasitic organisms that dwell in the sewers, manifesting many irregular mutants. In addition, both nest facilities are now compromised and the citizens above ground are becoming infected. There is chaos inside Nest 2, and many test specimens escape their confines and begin slaughtering people. Dr. Bard immediately orders his research team to mass-produce large quantities of the in-development T vaccine for the Epsilon T virus. One infected researcher has cultured the antigen, but needs to make it all the way to the incubation lab to retrieve the adjuvant. Problem is, the route between here and there is now full of zombies, pale heads, and other escaped test subjects. Thankfully, the T-103 tyrant subjects remain contained. Scenario. The T-Force somehow leaked. 
under orders from Dr. Bard. Or to manufacture a mess court to ease up the vaccine. I've prepared a culture of the T-Virus antigen. <coughs> now I just need to combine it with an atrophin to enhance its effects. I should be able to produce enough vaccine to save all the surviving citizens. <coughs> atrophin samples are stored in the incubation lab. Test subjects are already wandering the whole... <coughs> But I'd better find a way to get some samples while this culture is maturing. If I don't make it back, please complete the synthesis process. Try to find a way to stop this outbreak. It's the least we can do. <coughs> After setting these horrifying events in motion. Unfortunately, the scientist does not make it to the incubation room and complete the vaccine and the components remain separated. <coughs> Leon S. Kennedy is due to officially start work at the RPD today, but is told to stay away due to the strange incidents occurring across town. A report is made to the RPD about a vagrant attacking a passerby near the Lambs Museum of Art. By the time police arrive, it is a murder scene. A woman has been killed by a zombie who is no longer on the scene. This is the third such report this month, and news comet reporters are quickly on scene. In the grey of the morning of September 25th, a frantic caller telephoned the RPD to report an assault. A man, described as dishevelled like a vagrant, was attacking a passerby north of the Lambs Museum of Art. Responding officers discovered the mutilated corpse of a woman by some dumpsters nearby, dozens of bite marks covering her body, and she had been dismembered, suggesting that she had been eaten. The third known incident of its kind to occur in Raccoon City this month. So, who done it? Who's been munching on Mansteak? We here at News Comet have a gnawing feeling that the so-called cannibal disease patients Spencer Memorial have been providing free treatment for since August might not be settling for just the cafeteria food. Our reporters have infiltrated Spencer Memorial, asked the tough questions, and come back with horror stories that will make your stomach royal. Turn the page for the scoop. Throughout the day, mass rioting is reported across town as more and more infected show up. Local law enforcement is quickly overwhelmed in responding to these reports. They remain convinced that the zombie phenomenon they are experiencing are people suffering a massive psychological breakdown. A man is attacked by a woman who tries to bite him. He believes she is drunk. Look, man, I'm serious, okay? I saw this with my own eyes. Oh, I believe you, buddy. I believe you. <laughs> Just tell us a story. Tell us a story. Okay, I was walking home from the bar, and this woman started coming towards me. She was staggering, you know, so I, I figured she was drunk. Look, just listen, all right? She got closer, and I got a good look at her. You got to see her eyes, her nose, her whole face. It looked like it was rotting. Yeah. She looked like a corpse, like a walking corpse, man. I've never seen anything like it. The UBCS, who are already on standby, are officially given the go-ahead to head to Raccoon City and save the civilians. They will be deployed the following day. After months of training, Murphy Seeker is eager to get going. September 25th, 181 pounds, 30 kilometer run, four circuits. Target practice at 600 yards, 
No misses. Murphy's back, baby. You'll never see me miss another target. Tomorrow, I go on my first mission. Riot control in Raccoon City. I think Jimmy would have liked that. My brother was always the first to reach out and help people. Right up until those street punks took him away from me. Now it's my turn to do some good for a change. The way I know best. In response to the violent outbreaks across the city, workers at the substation initiate an intentional power outage until the situation is being brought back under control. The substation chief orders that one of his workers, Chad, deactivate the four main power breakers. Chad complies but is unnerved at just how much the drain demos have spread in the area over the last 24 hours or so. What happened to this place? I've seen some strange shit over the past few days. Those strange bugs building their nests. The metallic smell wafting through the vents. But fuck, if it didn't all go straight to hell overnight. I need to check up on my ma uptown, but the boss says I can't leave until I drop all the breakers. God damn it. Better finish up quick so I can get out of here. Unfortunately, whilst shutting down the last breaker, Chad is attacked by a drained demos and implanted with baby parasites. Unless he can find a green herb quickly, there is now only one inevitable outcome for him. Well, fuck me. My stomach hurts so much, I can hardly move. At the last breaker, big ugly bastard of a bug got the drop on me and shoved a big fucking tube to my throat. I managed to get away and somehow kept from vomiting on the spot. Fuck, it hurts. Feels like something's moving inside. Holding it together. Can't believe I haven't puked. Fuck. It hurts. Like I'm gonna tear apart. I think this is it for me. I love you, Mama. Jill Valentine is still under house arrest in her apartment and has been conducting her own private investigation into Umbrella's dealings across the city. She plans to get out of town in five days' time and join Chris in Europe. They've got me pinned down at home. Guys across the street are watching me from their window 24-7. Are they Ironsmen? Umbrellas? I don't know. And there's no real difference anyway. I know what they're trying to do. They won't wear me down, torment me into compliance. And it's working. I'm barely eating, barely sleeping, going crazy. I feel like the living dead. I won't let them win. I have to get out of the city and find a way to make them accountable. They'll send someone to silence me, of course. You hear that I've been killed, or whatever it is they do to people like me. You must pick up the investigation where I left off. I've enclosed my files. They'll tell you everything you need to know as long as this package isn't intercepted. I'll be moving out at night. Five days. Wish me luck. Attention all citizens. Due to the citywide outbreak, you are advised to take shelter at the Raccoon City Police Station. Free food and medical supplies will be provided to everyone in need. 
the RPD main hall is transformed into an emergency shelter for citizens seeking refuge from the cannibal attacks happening all over town. Officer David Ford updates the record of events. September 25th. We're turning the station into a temporary shelter due to the massive sudden outbreak. All police personnel have been instructed to make the safety of the citizens their top priority as we try to accommodate as many of them as possible. Nurse working at the Spencer Memorial Hospital worries about the number of infected overwhelming the isolation wing and infecting the rest of the hospital. She also comments on one of her colleagues spotting bodies being transported down to a secret entrance on the ground floor. September 25th. Every day they bring in more of these mysterious illness patients. The sedatives don't stop their delirium, so we have to put them in straitjackets and move them to the isolation wing. Problem is... The isolation wing is already bursting at the seams. The director has ordered us to admit anyone with the symptoms free of charge. But what does he expect us to do? Wish them better? We don't have a cure. And that's not all that's bothering me. When these patients die, they're not collected by the usual mortuary teams. We've been told it's special handling to prevent the illness from spreading. But I'm not sure I buy it. Miranda saw some guys wheeling a body through the forbidden door during the night. Why? Where? What is going on? Brad Vickers, colleague of Jill and survivor of the mansion incident, tries to send a note to her apartment hidden inside a pizza delivery box. He feels guilty for not supporting his colleagues in the aftermath of what happened at the Arkley mansion. To Jill Valentine. Hey, hotshot. How you holding up? I still can't believe Iron suspended you. Such bullshit. He ought to pin a medal on you for making it out of that hellhole back in July. Of course you're gonna poke around and ask questions about it. I hope you're not mad at me for keeping my head down. Everything's been happening so fast. Stars was the pride of the force. When the chief disbanded us out of nowhere, I thought for sure I was gonna lose my job. Word has it you're planning to leave Raccoon City. I figured you wouldn't take the suspension lying down. Just promise to watch your back. Umbrella won't sit by while you try to dismantle their business. Take care, Jill. Brad Vickers, Star's Alpha Team, now and forever. A P.S. I had to slip this message to the pizza guy to avoid detection. Enjoy the extra large Mega Meat Supreme. It's on me and the guys. At the RPD, an infected civilian turns into a zombie and attacks those sheltering nearby. After several casualties are reported, David Ford makes another entry in the operation report, still in denial about the zombie phenomenon. Addendum. One of the refugees attacked us in the middle of the night, resulting in the death of one officer and injuring three others. The person in question was quickly restrained. We believe this was simply a case of someone snapping under intense stress. Saturday, September 26th, 1998. Umbrella intelligence operative Lucy Yen has infiltrated the RPD and sends back a situation update. She is already disposed of any documentation pertaining to Umbrella held at the station. This is a Lucy Yen. Disposal complete. September 26th, 2.35 a.m. Department chaos after spread of infection. Multiple civilians taking refuge here are infected. All files related to you successfully disposed of are waiting for their orders. 
Later that day, the UBCS are deployed into Raccoon City. Among their number is Monitor and former Spetsnaz member Nikolai Zinoviev. Motivated solely by money, he plans to undermine UBCS operations, having received a more lucrative contract offer from Umbrella's mysterious rival company. The same organisation Ada Wong is also currently working for. Ada is already in town on a mission to steal a sample of the G-Virus, posing as an FBI agent. Contract overview. Received offer from clients seeking to use RC Crisis to undermine and claim market share from UC via a multi-pronged strategy. 1. Sabotage UC attempts to destroy evidence of outbreak to maximize culpability. 2. Induce encounters between UC bioweapons and security forces slash law enforcement and collect combat data to ascertain viability of tech. 3. Report deployment of any new bioweapons, including Project N. See specifications. Renumeration exceeds current offer from UC and takes top priority. However, the client has agreed to a grace period before using any of the deliverables so that payment from UC may also be collected. 26 September, 1300 hours, infiltrated Raccoon City, establishes a sporadic commencing mission. Various UBCS teams quickly engage the zombies across the city, and many are wiped out almost immediately by the hordes of virus carriers now roaming the streets. The RPD is suddenly overwhelmed by zombies, and the defensive barricades are broken through. Another battle breaks out, resulting in a number of deaths. David Ford is one of the survivors. mob attacked the station today, resulting in a number of casualties. A few survivors were able to make it safely behind the emergency shutters, but surrounded as we are, it'll be hard for any of us to escape this place. We're not sure we can fix any of our comm equipment, so we remain cut off from the outside world. Chief Irons, who by now is slowly losing his sanity thanks to the outbreak and Umbrella turning their backs on him, marches several unfortunate officers up to the third floor storage area of the RPD and locks them inside, placing C4 on the gate. One of his subordinates is having a breakdown, so he tosses him a gun to make things interesting. Damn those corporate assholes. They cut me off after all I've done for them. If that's how it's going to be, so be it. I'm gonna have a little fun of my own as the world goes to shit. I boarded all those filthy pigs up in a steel pen and set some C4. All I gotta do is detonate it, and it's sayonara, suckers. But it's no fun if it's over too soon, so maybe I'll give that one raving loon something to really squeal about. Yeah, maybe I'll give him a little toy and tell him, kill the guy next to you and I'll spare the others. I wonder what it'll do. You yell about justice and pride, but how many times do you go against me, your own superior? Yeah, you're such a good cop. So good you had to die. 
Man, this is fun. I need some music for this. Dr. Bard sends an email to Greg Tester requesting he arrange his immediate evacuation from Raccoon City using the T-Virus vaccine as leverage. He doesn't want the UBCS to take him as they will only hand him over to Umbrella who are busy killing off the remaining researchers and preventing existence of the T-Virus and the experimental vaccine being leaked. To Greg Tester. Subject, reply immediately. Greg, I know you're watching the news. This virus is going to devour the whole country. The dead will wash over Capitol Hill like a tidal wave. You're not safe. However, you've always been a good friend to me, so I'd like to offer you a way out. I have in my possession one dose of a vaccine for the virus. The Holy Grail. And it's not for my family, not for my ladies on the side. No, Greg, I'm saving it for you. I know better than anyone that you're the future of the United States. But if you want the goods, Greg, you're going to have to get me the hell out of here now without Umbrella finding out. Lean on the Pentagon for me. I know you've got the clout. See if someone can get a rescue team in here without UBCS involvement. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Which should sound pretty chaste after the parties we've been to. Hurry, my time is running out. Nate. Still trapped in her apartment, Jill decides to keep a record of her findings, so she failed to make it out of Raccoon City alive. September 26, 1998. It's already been two months since that mess with Umbrella. Thanks to the suspension, investigations haven't progressed exactly as I'd hoped. Perhaps this written record of what I've found will proved to be my final duty as a star's officer. I can only hope that it leads to the truth. The T-Virus. Those infected by this virus seem to become literal zombies. It appears to be communicable via several different avenues outlined below. Bite from an infected individual, allowing the mixing of bodily fluids. Contact with crows, which have eaten infected carrion. Due to the strength of the virus, airborne infection cannot be discounted. It should be noted that those who survived the incident have not yet developed symptoms. It's unclear whether this is because the virus has a long incubation period, or because we just happened to be resistant to the infection. We ought to remain vigilant, even after this investigation period ends. As for me, aside from my minor difficulties sleeping, I seem to be in fine shape. Still, I shouldn't get too hopeful. After all, this could just be an extended incubation. Nikolai witnesses police officers engage in battle with over 20 zombies. He observes the battle and records the combat data. Eric, what's taking so long? Hurry up! I'm trying! I'm almost done! Ah! Hurry! Hurry! Eric! Result five RPT officers engaging a pack of twenty strong. Officers annihilated in twenty minutes. 
Sunday, September 27th, 1998. In the early AM, Dr. Bard sends an evacuation request to the STARS private communication line. It goes unanswered. Lucy Yen, Umbrella's operative, still holed up inside the RPD, intercepts Bard's distress call and believes he may try and make his way to the police station. Yen requests UBCS be sent to the RPD to evacuate them both. <laughs> Lucy Yen, ongoing developments, September 26, 3.05 a.m. Communication intercepted in S Hospital on STARS private communications line. Presumed to be EVAC request from B. Possible he will flee the hospital and come here. Request UBCS dispatch. Already evacuate with their assistance. Nikolai lures a pack of zombies and zombie dogs to Raccoon University, where he records another massacre. 27th September, 1200 hours, test run at university, divert the power, including canines, to campus. 64% infection, and conversion is in 2 hours, no survivors. Zombies break through the barricades, sealing off the west wing of the RPD. Another battle breaks out, resulting in many casualties. The police have totally lost control of the situation. There was another clash on the west side of the station around 1 p.m. Twelve people died. There was only a handful of survivors left. Everything is falling into disarray in here. At Spencer Memorial, the hospital is becoming overwhelmed with infected patients. It won't be long now before staff lose complete control and become overwhelmed. Dr. Bard is still barricaded safely in his office. September 27th. Admitted over 20 mysterious illness patients. Patients in the isolation wing exhibiting severe limb necrosis, fever, muttering delirium, and signs of hyperphagia. Possible infection. Tried every antiseptic. Still no blood work back from the research wing. Ask again. Dr. Young was bitten while treating one of the patients. We've disinfected the wound, but his fever won't go down. Nothing works. Meanwhile, the outpatient wing is complete anarchy. The patients are delirious and growing more violent by the minute. We called in our off-duty staff. It's all hands on deck now. We have got to contain this chaos. David Ford survives an encounter with the liquor and leaves some ammo behind for his fellow survivors to use against them. <sighs>
Considered as a gift for anyone still unfortunate enough to be alive. Keep your eyes peeled for those creepy fucks that look like they were skinned alive. Lickers, we call them. Mind as bats, but they hear more than makes up for that. So long as you don't run around like a total idiot, guns a-blazing, you should be able to slip right by them. <laughs> Probably. Either way, make like my grandma and creep around as slow as possible around them, yeah? Anyway, not that I want to go, but duty calls. That, and I've got a friend to avenge. Nikolai meets up with Delta Platoon and immediately plans to kill them following his successful mock battle at the university and record the combat data of the infected. 2300. Successful rendezvous with MV Platoon. We'll make first attempt at dawn. Over 20 hours since her last communication, Lucy Yen has yet to be evacuated from the RPD, and her position is becoming untenable due to the number of zombies now wandering the halls of the station. Dr. Bard also still has not shown up, and Lucy resorts to blackmail in her last email as a desperate attempt to be rescued. This is my final injury. Lucy Yen, evacuation request. September 26, 11.54 p.m. Request evac has not yet arrived. This position is becoming untenable. I remain here with no condition. My safety will be guaranteed. If I'm left to die here, I swear I will dispute proof of collision and corruption between you and RC civics leaders. You have one hour to deliver a response. Monday, September 28, 1998. In the early hours, Lucienne's rescue never arrives and she is finally killed by zombies or lickers that have started to prowl the station. Zero two thirty AM with David Ford now missing having not checked in. Elliot Edward updates the operation report, and the desperation among the dwindling survivors makes them consider seeking out a rumoured underground passage in the main hall that was part of the former museum. Officer Rita Phillips was aware of it. September twenty eighth, two thirty AM. It's down to just me and three others. No weapons, no ammo, and too many skirmishes have drained us mentally and physically. We're not gonna make it. Officer Phillips once suggested we escape through the sewers. Apparently there's a secret tunnel under this place left over from its museum days. I brushed her idea off before, but now it's not sounding all that bad. Yeah, there's no proof there's even a tunnel or that the sewers aren't infested with zombies, but I don't want to sit here and wait to die either. It's a long shot, but I'm gonna try and find out what I can about that tunnel. Elliot Edward. Nikolai lures a large pack of infected towards the UBCS command post, where Mikhail and his comrades are holding up. He purposefully leaves the gate unlocked so the zombies can get inside. A large battle ensues, and Nikolai records it all. After four hours, the battle is finally over. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
28 September 04.30 the Vete Park towards command post. Result, night skirmish in confined area with large number of combatants. As you can see, video attached. The 800, end of skirmish, semi survivors. The survivors include Nikolai himself, Mikhail, who is now gravely wounded, Carlos Oliveira, Tyrell Patrick, and Murphy Seeker. The command base is overwhelmed and they are forced to retreat into the city. Some time later, they haul up at Redstone Street Station and barricade themselves inside. One of the subway cars is still operational, and if they can restore power, they could use it to ferry civilian survivors out of town via the Fox Park route. The city is completely cut off, isolated. Most of the 100,000 civilians will wind up dead, uh, correction, undead. My platoon has suffered serious losses. Just keeping them alive is more than I can manage. If we can get this subway train moving, we can evacuate some survivors. <laughs> Funny how brainless zombies can ambush a platoon like that. Finally, the gate was locked. Don't you think? <laughs> Claire Redfield, sister of Chris, makes plans to travel to Raccoon City the following day. Unaware of the hellhole the place has become, her best friend writes her a letter urging her to be careful. Dear Claire, first of all, thanks for the letter. Now, if you let me get this one thing off my chest, I can't believe you're really gonna do it. I can't believe you're biking all the way to Raccoon City all by yourself. Just to see your brother? What the hell? I know Chris means a lot to you and yeah, you haven't been able to reach him for a month and all, but you're nuts. You know how many perverts and assholes are out there just waiting for a hot young college student to come along and take advantage of? It's not safe to travel alone. But your mind's made up, isn't it? Fine, I get it. Just promise you'll call when you get to Raccoon City. Don't leave your best's best friend hanging, okay? Love you. Yes, your brother may be THE Chris Redfield, and he may have taught you how to fight and use a gun like a banshee, but that doesn't make you invincible, so don't get cocky out there. Raccoon City is now completely overrun with zombies and BOWs. A vast majority of the UBCS have already been wiped out. The whole area is under quarantine. Those who still live alongside the brave survivors of the RPD fight on to rescue civilians. This pandemic has spread faster than any disease in modern history. Angry mobs around the city. Burning buildings. Authorities are bracing for more rioting tonight. He was knocked unconscious. Uh, citywide emergency has been declared. The CDC has quarantined the lower Midwestern region of the U.S. Transporting Dispenser Memorial now. Emergency Dispenser Memorial now. RPD Dispatch. This is 153. I'm trapped in North Garden with three civilians. West side, cafeteria, back of the kitchen. One of us is injured and immobilized. Please advise. Ever since the power was shut down at the substation, the drain demos have turned the entire place into their nest, and the whole area is covered in a cocoon-like hide.
Wes Drucker, one of the few surviving cops in the RPD, is bitten by a zombie whilst trying to blow up a wall in the second floor shower room. He quickly realises he is infected and decides to hide inside a locker to stop himself attacking his friends. Hector, if you're reading this, I'm already dead. If you hear any noises coming from the locker, do not open it, please. While you're out on patrol, I focus on finding a way to get to the other side. I realize that explosives might be our best bet. I managed to rig up a pretty good bomb, but we don't have any batteries for the detonator. I'm pretty sure I sent one to the safety deposit room during intake last week. We need that battery if we're going to knock down this wall, so I headed upstairs to find you since I know you have the safety deposit room key. As soon as I left the shower room, I was attacked. One of them bit me. I washed the wound as best as I could, but I feel worse and worse. I hope I don't need to spell out why you must not open the locker. Please don't worry about me. Just get yourself out of here as fast as you can. Your buddy, Wes. P.S. Don't worry about that $600 I lent you. Think of it as a gift towards your upcoming move. Good luck, buddy. 1800 hours. Nikolai watches the Nemesis T-Type being deployed into the city via a special capsule. This is potentially the Project N his prospective contractors at the rival company informed him about. 1800. Unknown bioweapon deployed at point B18. Tracking into perotors. It appears to be on the hunt. A wounded UBCS member collapses in the street. All his unit have been wiped out and he doesn't know if he's infected or not. Even after all his combat experience across the globe, nothing he has encountered before compares to this. He chooses suicide and peace. The Middle East. Eastern Europe. East Africa. I thought I knew what hell was. I figured I'd never crack, no matter what was thrown at me. This job, this one was supposed to be easy. A quick wage. I earned it. It all happened at once. There were 30 guys in our squad, all armed with state-of-the-art assault rifles. And yet we were wiped out in less than 48 hours. I've been doing enough shit to know it only ever gets worse. But that was just the beginning. Maybe I'm a coward. I don't care. This is the only way out I have left. Except my body doesn't get back up to after I pull the trigger. Twenty hundred hours. Nikolai has been observing the nemesis tracking Brad Vickers. Brad has been lucky so far and quickly realizes the creature is after Star's members. Now the pursuer is closing in on Jill Valentine's apartment. Twenty eight hundred. But eyes on two stars. A male. Infected. Female. Bioweapon is pursuing the female. 2000 hours 7 minutes. Jill is still in her apartment, preparing to leave when she receives a frantic warning from Brad Vickers. Who could that be? Hello? Jill! Are, are you okay? Brad, is that you? Listen, you gotta get out of there! What are you talking about? I don't have time to explain! You gotta get out of there right now! Alright, let me grab my- ah! 